This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah, the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Temple Mount. And please go online to YomTovMediaClub.com, join the club, and let's get the word out. Now, uh, I meet a lot of people who, who really want to know a couple of things. Well, one of the things they want to know is who they are, and they also want to know what they're here to do. So, like, there's the who they are, and, like, who am I, and what am I here to do with myself? And, and it really baffles me sometimes that there's so many people who don't know who they are or what they're here to do, and they're already, like, 20 years old. Like, how did you get to 20? How did you manage to live on this earth for 20 years not knowing neither who you are nor what you want to do? Looking at screens. I got looking at screens. For 20 years, how did you get that far? And, of course, I know I'm messing with all of you because a lot of you are older than 20 and have no idea who you are nor what you want to do. So I was really just messing with you guys. So the truth is, is that, is that very few people, and no matter what age you find them, are, could seriously stand up and tell you who they are and, and then to tell you that they're right in the pocket of their, their divine contribution to the planet. You know, and, and especially in the, in the black hatitude world where this is not at all uh, who you are is, you know, you're number seven in a group of ten that we're looking for to pray. And, <laughs> and, uh, and what you're here to do is mitzvahs. And the fact that you were born unique than all other people is irrelevant. That's not relevant. What's relevant is that you do the mitzvahs. And, and that's why I, I like to do this distinction, um, which will not be what this class will be about, but it's the distinction be- between being Jewish versus what? Jewish. They think it's enough to be Jewish, and then they've covered Jewish. You know, whereas, and I meet other people who are like, they think Jewish does the trick and they don't have to worry about the Jewish part. But we really have to do, we have to handle both. We have to be at the minion, number seven guy walking in the door and praying with the barcode on your talus so God knows who in the world it is and, and you gotta just be one of those people in there going like this and praying. And you'll notice nothing's in first person. It's all plural. It's all like, you're doing a general job for every mineral, plant, vegetable, mineral, vegetable, animal, and all the Gentiles, we all have some 500 Gentiles per Jew that's counting on you. And, uh, and by the way, if you don't do your job, if they knew who you were, you'd be knocked out so fast. <laughs> I mean, they'd really just grab you and put you back in the study hall. You know, you'd imagine you, you'd want to take a break from the study hall, so you, you start heading out the door. And there are 500 Gentiles waiting at the door going, where do you think you're going? And you're like, well, you know, I kind of thought I'd do my laundry. And they're like, We'll take care of your laundry. You know, like, like there are 500 of us. And we all have jobs. You know, I mean, we can pay for it. We can do it. We can do a million. There's a million ways to get your laundry done other than you, the Jew, doing it. Go back and study. And so, and so the same thing would be, uh, you know, for really, you know, they would want to do that. Or if you really refuse to study, they'd be happy to, like, knock your head off in anger. And so some Kabbalists actually explain anti-Semitism as just the anger at the Jews for not doing their job. And if they knew who their Jew was, they'd go after him. But they don't know who their Jew is. That's still hidden, only in the times of the Messianic era, when Mashiach comes. 
will every Gentile know they're Jew? So watch out, Jews. <laughs> they're going to be looking for you. And, they, and they're going to come try to find you. And the, uh, but till they know who they are, they're just like, well, I'm getting ripped off, and it's the Jews ripping me off, and I don't know which one's mine, so we'll just go for anyone. And so they just kind of randomly start slugging people. So anyway, that's not for us. But the people are interested in knowing are interested in knowing what their special purpose is in this world and people live pretty long lives without ever figuring that out which is really scary and then there's all the people who have them both faked meaning they're faking who they are and they're faking what they're here to do get a lot of people doing that they're they're faking who they are because they've been modeling themselves off of i don't know what superheroes rock stars rabbis parents you know They've, mo- they've cut and pasted who they are off of everyone else. And so who they are is a fake, because it's not them, it's other people. And then, and then there's many people who have taken some contribution in the world, one thing or another, I don't know what it may be, but they've, it's not their contribution, and they, and they contribute. Which is nice, that's great, that's wonderful, except, except for the, that person, they're always going to deep down know that's not who really, really who they are, and it's not really what they came here to do. At which point they're going to die and God's going to say, were you Jewish? And they're like, not really. And were you Jewish? Sorry, did I say Jewish? Were you, did you contribute what I brought you here to contribute? And you're like, well, not really, but I did some other stuff. At which point God's just going to pull the hook out of your mouth because we're all born with a hook in our mouth. He's going to pull the hook out of your mouth after he's reeled you back onto his boat. He's going to pull the hook out. What's he going to do with you? He's going to throw you back in for another round. You're going to have to come back here and do it all over again. And so there are very few people who know who they are or what they came here to do. And that's what we're going to focus on today. How do you know who you are and how do you know what you came here to do? And so the first thing of all, anytime you want to discover anything, is you got to get rid of what's not in order to get to what is. You know, sometimes we have to unlearn in order to learn. And so, the, so what is the healthiest way to find out who you are is first to just strip down what you're not. Get rid of what you're not. Well, how am I supposed to know when I'm not? And the answer is look in the mirror. <laughs> Probably most of you is what you're not. So, so meaning just get rid of all of it. If there's anything that's really who you are that you got rid of, well, it's probably going to come back with a vengeance. You don't have to worry about that too much. Like, for example, um, I got rid of a lot when I first became observant in 1991. So I like literally like, I had like a personality lobotomy or something. I had a, I had a personality transplant. Where I like, I like removed who I was, and I was just like this, this Talmud studier, and I was just gonna. That was gonna be my persona, and that's what I did for years. And my wife even married a guy like that, and and I'll never remember. I'll never, remember, I'll never forget the the night we were in San Diego. I was in, doing outreach at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, and we had an extra night where we stayed in a in a hotel and. And I don't know what happened to me, but like all of me came back that night. It was the weirdest thing. And she didn't seem to complain, but I was back. And I was back and I was back with Torah. I was back with Talmud. I was back with mitzvahs. I was back with everything that I'd been doing all the years of, of my having taken on this Torah lifestyle. I had all of that, but I had all of me too. And those who know me a bit, I don't know if any of you know me a bit, I mean, some of you have been in a few of my classes, but if you know me a bit, 
I don't think I'm someone you would think lacks self-expression. Yet at the same time, I look exactly like all my neighbors, but exactly like all my neighbors. You know, I mean, you might as well put a number on my forehead, you know, just to know which neighbor I am. But fully self-expressed. And, and so they're, they're not at all contradictory to live fully Jewish and fully Jewish. You can have them both. And, you know, the outfit I wear that looks similar to my neighbors is just a small price to pay to have my wife and my children and myself protected. From, from certain elements that I wouldn't want in, certain media I wouldn't want in, certain billboards I wouldn't want in, some, all kinds of stuff that I, I just don't want that. And, and if I don't want that, and I, so therefore there are communities that will protect you from the ravages of Western civilization and all the expansion and, and, and intrusion of the United States of Asa into our lives. And, and I'm like a... And you, you can have a community that protects you from that, but you can, you got to play the part. You know, you can't just... Yeah, you, you know, like this gentleman here is in shorts and in short sleeves. So you're thinking like, wow, I want to be in that protective neighborhood. But, you, but there's a uniform there. Now, I'm not saying you should move there, but if you did want that kind of protection, you thought your neighborhood would be a good place for that kind of protection, you got to dress the part. You're part of a community. you got to be part of that community. And you're getting a ton, and you're paying very little, and it's worth it. Worth the price, in my opinion. You got to make your own choice, but I certainly have had. I've, I can now look in retrospect, having raised several kids who are now, you know, in their twenties. Um, these are these are solid citizens. These kids, my kids, meaning there there was a lot of protection there. They've come out very pure, very good, very edel. Uh, I don't know what that means noble. in English, but what noble noble kids yeah okay we can call it noble and they're noble kids and they but they grew up with all that protection and and I and I, you know we pay a bit of a price in some of our maybe our outfits or some of the you know when we really turn the decibels up we try to make sure it's Barry Weber or Mordecai Ben David okay when it's down a little bit maybe it's John Anderson of Yes or something but when we really crank it up you know it's going to be Mordecai Ben David or Avram Freed or you know, one of those characters, and and the, but you know, we're playing the part because we, we they're getting something, we're getting, everyone's getting something over there, and what we're getting is worth having, in our opinion, and y'all, everyone has their own opinions, what's worth having, and what's worth paying, what you're willing to pay, and I would say I, I score, I'm I'm laughing my way to the bank, on this one, you know, because I because I I only gained, and what did I lose, and you should know, this is just a funny point, is that. As a surfer, surfers really never change clothing because you're always in salt water. We don't shower much either. So, so we're just always in our surf shorts. And, you know, I didn't wear underwear for like 12 years because okay? surf shorts don't come with underwear. And that's basically all I wore for a really long time. And so, so what was amazing, I never thought this would ever be the case, but when I discovered the Haredi outfit, I was like, oh my gosh, I get to continue never changing my clothing. <laughs> Except now you must shower because, because you know, another thing about wearing only short surf shorts is you don't schwitz as much as you do, you know, in the black hat and the black coat and all the layers. I mean, how many layers am I always wearing, you know? One layer, Did you two surf? layer, three layer, four layer. And, uh, and my coat, that's already five layers just walking around in the summer. What's that? When you became Jewish, when you were in San Diego, did you surf? I was surfing the whole time. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I mean, how much surfing are you doing in Jerusalem? 
No, not that much <laughs> surfing. But I do surf in Tel Aviv and uh, Ashdod, and I, my parents live in Malibu, so I surf Malibu when I'm there. And I try to accept Shabbatons in countries that have good surf, and <laughs> and they don't know that necessarily why I'm there. But but the uh, I mean I'm there to give, but you know like there's a lot of places to give other than Durban, South Africa. You know, but the waves are pretty hot in Durban, South Africa, and. Uh, I mean, most rabbis don't make their way to Cape Town, you know, after Johannesburg, because there's just not so many Jews there, and they're not that interested in listening to a rabbi. But I don't think there was ever a time I went to Johannesburg without going to Cape Town. You know, and, and then I teach in Cape Town, but the morning I serve. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story, though, is that in Jerusalem, when I first got here, my Talmud rabbi felt I was a little depressed, so, so, uh, which is normal. Yeah, but most yeshiva boys get depressed for a while. Yeah, if you ever decide to go to yeshiva, you ever you grew up in yeshivas, or you, no. if you ever decide to go to yeshivas, yeshiva, you should know that one of the prices you'll pay is your happiness will not be <laughs> so strong. And and the only reason that is is because you can't get anything un, more unnatural than a person how old are you? Nineteen. Than a nineteen-year-old man who's like ready to like go conquer the world to have him sit. What's the word yeshiva mean from the word yoshev? To sit. To have a 19-year-old sitting with ideas all day long is like, you know, it's really exciting at the beginning, but after a while, you're just like, you start becoming this like pasty-faced yeshiva boy. And and it's you have to pay with a little bit of joy there. You're going to lose a little joy in order to have, uh, come on in, you want to learn? <laughs> you're just checking it out? Yeah. Oh, so you stand in the back for a minute. I was just saying that, <laughs> I was just saying that the, for a student, for a student to come to yeshiva, I don't mean these classes. I mean a regular yeshiva, like next door. So you have to pay a little with your joy. At the beginning, it's super exciting. But after a while, it's like, what in the world am I doing here? And the answer is that you realize at a certain point in your life that you're going to need certain information, what we call around here wisdom, but you're going to need some information to raise a family in 2025. You know, you're going to need to know some stuff if your kids are going to come out remotely normal and also how you're going to be married and stay married in a world where 60% in metropolitan areas people are divorced now I don't think any one of them at their marriage would have told you they were going to be getting divorced but but somehow you could go up to 6 out of 10 weddings and before you give your bracha under the chuppah you could say by the way statistically you'll probably be divorced within 5 years <laughs> Baruch <laughs> so you know, no one's thinking they're going in for that. None of you think that either. But you may be in that statistic, and there could be something in Judaism that's going to help you beat that statistic. And therefore, what's your name? Jack. Jack, it's worth it to be a pasty-faced yeshiva bucket for a little period of time until you ultimately get Torah, you know, and get enough Torah that you can, you can weather life in a way that you come out on top and not, you know, like just suffering the way people suffer out there. And there's a lot of suffering, you know. And, and by the way, that's no guarantee you're not going to suffer too. You may also suffer, but at least you're suffering with some tools. And uh, you understand you have, you have Torah and you're part of a, part of a system of, of mentors that you can turn to. And, you know, because you paid your dues here, you get to know some rabbis after a while. They start developing a feeling for you such that you're, they're invested in you and they could be there for you 20 years later. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty good thing to have. 
So all of that's worth it, but it costs a lot. So my rabbi of Talmud said I looked a little depressed, and I, I, I said I am a little depressed, and, but so is everybody else who cares, you know. And, and he's like, well, is there anything you really enjoy doing? And I said, well, I enjoy surfing. Now we're in the mountains of Jerusalem in Torah. So I'm like, he's like, how about number two? <laughs> Meaning like, can you give me something else that's a little more accessible? I said, well, I always liked mountain biking. So he looks out the window, he sees, okay, there's mountains. It's East Jerusalem, you know, probably a little dangerous, but okay, do you have a mountain bike? I'm like, no, my mountain bike's in California. And he says, well, you're not allowed back in my class without a mountain bike. And I'm like, ah, I mean, it's 2 p.m. How am I going to get a mountain bike by tomorrow morning? And he says, he says, well, I've spoken. So what I do, I took off and went looking around Jerusalem. No mountain bike shops in Jerusalem. So, I, so this is before there was mountain biking in Israel. I've been mountain biking for 40 years, but Israel's mountain biking has only been really the last 20 maximum. And so, but I did find a mountain bike shop in northern Tel Aviv, a place called Ramat HaSharon. There was a real mountain bike shop with real mountain bikes. So anyway, about evening time, I finally pilfered the mountain bike. And I, I make my way back to class the next morning. And he says, he says, did you get a mountain bike? We're in the nine in the morning in class. And I said, I said, I did. Very proud of myself and ready to learn. And he says, did you ride it? And I was like, well, I mean, I, I didn't have time to ride it. And he says, you're not welcome back in class until you've ridden it. Which point I turned around and went to my dorm room and got on my brand new bike and powered like three, four hours off road on Jerusalem's terraced mountains only to realize that like, like all extreme things in Israel, like everything's extreme. Israel doesn't do beginner nor intermediate mountain biking. <laughs> it's only like insane. Like, like you have to be able to get from terrace to terrace. Some of these terraces, you can only get down with ropes, but somehow you can mountain bike down them. And, and, uh, as long as there's a good run out after afterwards, you know, and, and so next thing I know, I was hooked on mountain biking in Israel. Thank God for this rabbi. And, uh, that's actually where I'm going. Like literally I'm, I'm finishing this class. I'm finishing this class. It's the red button. Just press the red button where it says off. Yeah. Let me tell you another thing. Hand your phone to your wife and let her put it on buzz. Those ringers are for women's purses. Okay, men, no men use ringers. We use buzz. Women use ringers because they have purses and they have to fish their phones out. Can you take care of this uh, buzz? Buzz. Okay? Men don't have ringers. That's okay, but he shouldn't have a ringer even when he leaves the class. Men don't use ringers. Okay? Now, the... Um, Whatever, so, the, so this guy got that I needed a little more of my U-ish coming out, which for me meant extreme sports. Okay, here we go. So who are you? That's the first thing. So, so as I said, you gotta do a bit of a teardown. So the teardown is to release yourself from the bonds of your self-image. Release yourself from the bonds of your self-image. That's number one. So, so self-image. Okay. 
release yourself from that. The word self-image comes from the word imagine, so it's the self-imagine, or the otherwise known as the imaginary self. And it ain't worth nothing to you nor to anybody else, and you're just ripping everybody off, and you're ripping yourself off. And just get rid of the thing. That's why you have to be so defensive all the time, and why you gotta be nervous going into a wedding, because you know when you're living in self-image, well, imagine, let's say, for example, I meet this guy for the first time. What's your name? Michael. Michael. So I'm meeting Michael for the first time. And, and if I've got self-image, so that's going to include lots of details, like how smart I am, how not, not smart I am, uh, what I do for a living, um, how much money I make, um, oh gosh, my education, and then my Torah amounts of wisdom in Torah. And, and it's also going to be my looks. It's also going to be my height. And you understand there's a lot involved in a self-image. And now all of that is immediately going to be compared to his. Every one of them. Your height, your looks, your money, your, your smarts. You understand? So like, what are the chances that when he tells me his name, by the way, what's his name? Anyone got it? Very good. What are the chances? Yeah, but you weren't me. I'm the one who had to deal with it. Because I've got my self-image on the line when I meet Michael. What are the chances that I would forget his name right away? I mean, I wouldn't even hear it. When you notice how you meet people, you miss their name, and they just told it to you? You know why? Because you're too busy dealing with the fact that you may not want to really know this person, because knowing them may mean making you, turning you into someone about that small. Because you don't know the person, so you don't know how your self-image is going to hold up in the presence of this new entity. And so you don't even get their name, which is wild. That's why it's really important to get in the habit of, of stating their name at least once. I'll show you how to meet someone like that. I'm going to ask you again. Hi, what's your name? Michael. Hi, Michael. My name's Yom Tov. See what I just did? Yes. <laughs> Put, get habitual about getting their name in at least once. You can keep going. I, you know what I'll do sometimes? I'll do it twice. Watch this. Hi, what's your name? Michael. Michael? Nice to meet you, Michael. My name's Yom Tov. <laughs> so you can ask it as a question. Michael? And you get in the habit of that. So at least the name pops in a few times. Anyway, but with self-image, you're not, you don't really want to meet anybody. You certainly don't want to be at a round table at a wedding. I mean, that's a disaster. No wonder people drink alcohol at these events. You know? That ought to smooth things over. You know? and, uh, and let a little of you maybe leak out of your self-image. Maybe it's a favorite everybody you drink a little alcohol at a wedding. So that maybe a little of you might leak out from your self-image, which holds it in. So, so the first thing is to realize that your self-image is... is the enemy. It's not something you want to be putting forward or, or like getting out there. Or, you don't want to do any of that. You don't want to do any of that. You're going to make anyone who has a lower self-image than you, meaning, meaning they're not going to win so much on the scales of all those categories. It, the, don't you want people to feel comfortable around you? So if you're coming out with a bunch of self-image, so you're automatically pushing people away because of the, wherever they're going to line up inferior to any category. And the other thing is your, your, your self can't relax. So the self-image is really a disaster. It's a disaster. And, and it's also where greed comes from. And that's why the world can't, you know, barely, you know, is sustaining itself and, and whatever. A lot of disaster with self-image. Self-image is not a good thing. You don't want to have it. Um, you, don't, you don't want your kids to have it. You know, like you probably be happy. Anyone here have kids? Yeah. So you probably, those of you with kids are probably thinking pretty happy about the fact that your kid has maybe a good self-image. <laughs> you 
You don't know what they're going through. Your kid having that good self-image is, is in a constant crucible, a constant gauntlet. Like he's in some kind of crazy high-tension high sci-fi thriller video game of maintaining that. And, and that makes them nervous. And so what's giving you pride is taking a toll on the kid. It's not your fault. You're doing great. You're just getting your pride from your kid having a good self-image. But the key, and this is the key in all spiritual traditions, I don't know why Judaism would be the exception, is to have no self-image. Who is the one Jew in all the Torah where we really make the biggest deal out of his greatness? Who's that? Moses. What's he known for? No self-image. Like he, he has no self-image. Like He could shepherd sheep. He could shepherd a nation. Like He doesn't care. The nation complains to him. A, he says, I don't know who I am. You know, like, it's God's the one who let us out here. You know, like, okay, I'm in front, but, you know, you got complaints. Talk to God. I, who am I? You know? So he was really the quintessential nobody. You know, there was nobody home there when it came to self-image. Nothing. And why do you think God chose him? God chose him that way. And interestingly, a great insight into the suffering you had as a kid, because all of us suffered as kids. It might have been an embarrassment. It might have been, a, you know, meaning some kind of humiliation, or it might have been a, uh, a failure of some sort, or not getting picked for something, kind of feeling left out, or not loved, or not wanted, or not worthy, or whatever it was. All those disasters we had as kids, we learned from Moses, are part of some deep, deep process that we have to go through. Because our sages teach us an oral tradition that the reason Moses became such a nobody was because he actually had an issue. And that issue was a speech impediment where an angel got him to pick up a, a um, what was it? It was a coal, a burning red hot coal and put it touches to his tongue. And now there's a whole story around that, which we won't go into. But the ultimate end of that story was he wound up not being able to speak correctly. And that that led him to um, probably a lot of negative feelings about himself, which led to a feeling of humility, but a Gentile feeling of humility, not the Jewish one. The Gentile feeling of humility is I'm a nothing. I mean, I'm worthless. That's Gentile humility. A A Jewish definition of humility is is I am awesome, but he's the source of why I'm awesome. You understand? Because if you live, Jack, if you live anything but how awesome you are, totally, it's like spitting in the face of God who made you this way. You understand? Like certain people are just awesome. You know, this is my friend Rob. I've known this guy forever. We were, we were Israeli folk dance, you know, buddies in Santa Barbara. This man is awesome. He's an awesome man. And, and for him to think otherwise, which he doesn't, but if he were, and you, we, could, we could all have our days, you're spitting in the face of God who created you. You understand? Jewish humility is to see yourself as awesome, only you're not the source of why you're awesome. God's the source of why you're awesome. And since we're on that, let's move a bit. But just that insight about Moses is that he did have to go through some rough years. And we've all gone through those years. All of us had things happen to us when we were kids. And we had all kinds of unrectified thoughts about ourselves. Had to build ourselves up with some kind of self-image to compensate for it. But eventually, I, I mean, I imagine 
there's nothing like a little prophecy to get rid of all the, you know, the stupid stuff. But Moses was ultimately got prophecy at the burning bush. And you see at first he's like, no, not me. Wrong guy. <laughs> Wrong guy. You know, like I'm the guy who suffered the speech impediment all those years. Go with Aaron, my brother, who happens to be the leader of the Jews right now. So why don't we go with the current leader and I'll just keep shepherding sheep out here with my speech impediment. So you see at the beginning of the burning bush discussion, you know, Moses is still in kind of the Nebuchadnezzar. That's a Yiddish, but uh, I'm saying Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you know, the poor me. He's still in poor me fashion. You know, you know what you do with therapists. You know, you, you pay someone 150 bucks to tell them how poor me. You know, I'm not talking about real therapy. I'm talking about the weekly stuff that people will do for years and years and years. You know, it's just a paid friend where you can talk horrible about yourself for, you know, for an hour. No wonder they brought it down to 50 minutes. They keep bringing down the time and upping the price. You know, because, I mean, think about it. Anyone in this room, like, like if you, how many of you would take 50 bucks to hear someone's, like, crazy poor me story? Who would take in this room 50 bucks? Okay, now, right? So you'd have 50 bucks. And then after uh, five, nine hours of that, from yeah, you'd have uh, you'd have four hundred and fifty bucks. Is that right? Did I do the math right? Four hundred and fifty bucks. And then after five days of four hundred and fifty bucks, you'd have how much bucks? What? You have eighteen hundred dollars at the end of a week. At the end of a month, you'd have how much? 18 times four? $7,200 at the end of the month. Shimon, how would you like $7,200 at the end of this month? Every month, right? Yeah, except there's only one problem, though. And what's the one problem? Is that you heard nine hours of poor me stories a day for a month. You're going to want to ram your head into a wall. And then what's going to happen is after you got your $7,200, the next day, you're, someone's going to be walking in your office and you're going to suddenly be like, <coughs> I think I'm not feeling well. Canceled. And the guy's like, how about $100? And you would be like, feeling better. Except 45 minutes. And <laughs> that's it, man. 45 minutes. I'm going to literally lunge myself off the edge of this building here in nine hours straight of this stuff like okay 45 minutes maybe you know that I'll do see you understand where this is going so why do you think it happened that way me personally when I'm seeing someone privately if I don't have something stop me at the end of the hour I'm just gonna keep going First of all, I'm not here to hear any poor me. The second they go poor me, I like, I got, <laughs> they're really on the clock. Meaning poor me, they've got 10 minutes of that. <laughs> okay, at the end of the poor me 10 minutes, I'm like, okay, let's get back to reality and start doing some work here and get to the core of how awesome you are, which may take a couple sessions to get there. And we may have to cry out a couple things and we might have to regress you back into your childhood or who knows what we're going to have to do. But I'll tell you this much, I don't know when the hour ends. I would, I'll be two hours in. The guy's like, don't you have to go somewhere? And I'm like, I'm like, why? What time is it? And they're like, well, we've been sitting here for two hours. I'm like, you're kidding. Because it's inspiring. Me. 
it's it's amazing to dig someone out of out of their scrap without the S. But there's a problem when you dig someone out of their scrap. You know what happens when you dig someone out of their scrap? You know what the problem is? Where are they no longer? They're no longer in their scrap. Which means they don't need you no more. They've graduated. Which is real therapy. Yeah. Which anyone watching this, I hope you get help if you have a good problem. <laughs> I know people have saved their lives because they had a good therapist. Save my life. Same life. I've had some good therapists over the years. That's why a person yeah. does this can't have a self-image. Like a wrong, a wrong one, as you said. Yeah, same thing. Back to self-image. Okay, what's that's enough. With, but anyway... What? I, I don't quite understand what's wrong with the self-image. Oh, yo, this is all on live? I did the first 10 minutes only on what's wrong with self-image. I mean, I have the notes from it. So that's what's wrong with self-image. Yeah. That's why I call it a disaster. Okay? So you can review your notes after. Now, the... Or maybe you need to internalize them a bit because you were just taking them without maybe integrating, which would make sense. I mean, how are you supposed to integrate something on the spot? It's fine. But redo it, relook at it, check it out. If you still have a question, you can ask me tomorrow. And anyone can always WhatsApp me or uh, take them up on WhatsApp. Sure. Anyone, you, anyone on WhatsApp can WhatsApp me and be in touch and share with me your joys and victories. You know, I also go to bed every night, you know, wondering if I'm making a difference in this world and... Seeing in a WhatsApp that says I did means so much to me. And people are always thinking like, but I don't want to bother the rabbi. And I'm like, what bothers me is that you don't give me any feedback if I actually made a difference, you know? And not to mention, sometimes I get my facts wrong. And if I get my facts wrong and no one WhatsApp me and let me know that, well, I'll probably get it wrong the next time. So please, you know, help me, correct me if I'm wrong. So anyway, my WhatsApp is plus nine seven two. Anyone can WhatsApp. Plus 972. You can write it. 52 uh, The only warning is that I am a little busy and sometimes I'm airborne. And, and your WhatsApp could get avalanched by 30 others. And so it's really simple. All you do is put an arrow going up like that. Or, you know, an arrow or a thumb or put something... Just send me another little something. You know why? What's it going to do with your original message? It's going to throw it back on top. Puts it back on top of the avalanche. So don't get all drama queen. <laughs> you know, that your avalanche WhatsApp, not to mention all the emergency ones, because, you know, out of every 30, a couple of them are pretty urgent. You know, don't get all drama queen if I don't immediately answer you. Just give me a second to be chilling somewhere and going through things. And, and I go through things, like every couple of days I go through everything and see if anyone's saying anything that I need to be aware of. Yeah. So I have a question. So we went over self-image, which is a very complex and convoluted subject. Yeah. And then how were you able to start breaking that down to get into your true self? So we're not going to do so much how right now, Okay. but that's an excellent question and that's the work I do. I, I started a company 18 years ago called The Possible You. I have 8,000 graduates, and it is the how you break this down. Mm. Not a simple thing. People have to be pretty stable to go through it. Okay? And I happen to be running one. Uh, we just moved my English one. I'm flying to England this week to do an intro, and I was supposed to be doing one Sunday in England. My staff said, you don't just go there and introduce it and start one. Introduce it, start one in September, come back and do one here. So here is where I live, so here's where I do them. 
So I'm doing one this week, so you can go online and you can write it down on the back of that if you want. It's called thepossibleyou.org. Any men, it's a men's one. Any men, any men who are here in the next week, and if you're watching this, you can fly in if you want, although we do have New York in three weeks, be in New York City in three weeks, that one's available as well. Um, it'll be in Muncie in the hills. And the, uh, anyway, the, that's something worth checking out. It's heavy duty work. It's the full, like a lot of people tell me who came to Israel that this was the work of their year. I mean, they learned a lot of Torah, but the part about them, this was the full strip down, like, like really get it all out and like, who am I? And create that who I am. But, but now we're cut to the chase. Let's all imagine we just did the possible use seminar. Okay? You just graduated the possible use seminar. So who are you? Who are you? And the answer is you are four things. One, two, three, four. And number one is this is all about who are you? And as I said, you got to strip this down and let go of all those stories just like Moses had to have a story with this speech impediment. But eventually, at the burning bush, he had to let it go by the end. God got angry at him. Because Moses, after, after, I think, how many times did Moses say he's not going to go? I think it was the fourth time that God finally just, like, roared. You know, and said, it's you, buddy. You're the great man here. You're the great man that I want to do this. Yeah, your brother's cute and sweet. You. You, Michael. You know, that's, that's what God said. You know, after Moses enough times with his speech impediment. Like, God's like, who gave speech, man? I'm the one who gave speech, and the same guy who gave it, I'll take it away too if you don't use it properly. And, and next thing you know, Moses is just like, yes, sir, and he's off to Egypt. He's off to Egypt. Although it is kind of interesting that he asked his father-in-law first. Are we supposed to learn something about that? Like, I don't ask my father-in-law anything. But, okay, back to us. So... The question is, who are you? Who are you? So the answer is, number one, is you are a soul. Otherwise known as no one. You're a soul, which is this great consciousness that is your awareness of your awareness, right? Are you aware that you're aware? Are you all aware that you're aware? Meaning, uh, meaning if you have this, let's say this is... I'm not a very good artist here. I'm a musician, but... There you are. Okay? We'll call you Alfalfa. Okay? That's you. And, uh... <laughs> I'm really not much of an artist. But the, uh, the frontal lobe is the awareness of this classroom around you. But then there's some other, like, greater awareness of your awareness. So there's two awarenesses going on. There's awareness... One, we'll give it a one because it's one with all consciousness. That's your awareness one. And then there's an awareness two is your actual physical neurons. Your awareness of your neurons that you're inside a classroom. Right? Because your neurons are telling you things right now. You feel the chair under your body. You feel the fabric of your clothing. You sense the walls surrounding us. You sense the air in the room. It's clearly indoors. It's freezing in here. And... And um, you understand there's, there's an awareness that you're in the room. But you also, you're aware that you're in the room. There's a you that's aware of that awareness. Now that pure consciousness, it, without any of your narrative, are there two R's in the word narrative? Yes. yes, yes. Thank you. 
I, I left school when I was 11. My next time I was in a classroom was actually here at Asia Torah, 23. Your narrative, do you believe you're all in a class? You're all coming to hear the wisdom of someone who dropped out of school when he was 11? I'm an elementary school dropout. And somehow I'm the one with the pen and the board. <laughs> it's a miracle! So, <laughs> I don't know how to spell the word narrative. So I appreciate your help. Um, Fool in German, N-A-R-R in German. Perfect, perfect. So on the other side of your narrative is your pure consciousness. And your pure consciousness is, your pure consciousness is the same as mine. Because think about it, if you strip yourself of your narrative and I strip myself of my narrative, what's left is just pure consciousness, the awareness of the awareness. And that pure awareness of your consciousness has no, there's no difference between yours and mine, it's all just consciousness. Well, where did it come from? Everything comes from somewhere, and it's certainly not, you can't find awareness on a brain scan. So the answer is, it has a lot to do with what? The soul. Which is really interesting, because, well, where did that come from? The answer is, well, that comes from God. Which means my consciousness is really God consciousness. Which gets really sci-fi when you start to realize that God's actually living through us. Because where is your consciousness from? It must be from the consciousness that created the world. Because the world's been created by a conscious being. And that conscious being has infused us with consciousness. A self-reflective conscious state. And that consciousness is his consciousness. Which means he's living through you. Which is really quite amazing. Amazing implications, and none of which we have time for now. Now there's two other things you get, which I think my Talmud rabbi noticed about me, is he noticed that I'm a rascal. My Talmud teacher noticed that I'm a rascal. His name was, uh, Walitsky was his name? Rabbi Walitsky, who, was, who would punch you if you sat next to him. Danger. I sat next to him. Have you ever sat next to him? I <laughs> But he would like punch your leg if you got the wrong end. Bam! You know, you're like, oh man. So Rabbi Walitsky saw I was a rascal. Probably the way I, I was probably acting like a rascal in class and asked me to get a mountain bike and ride it before I can come back to class. And that's the natural personality. This has nothing to do with your narrative. Natural personality. Again, it has nothing to do with your narrative. That's why you'll notice toddlers, two-year-olds, who, have, who they, their minds don't go more than a few hours at a time, meaning as far as memory. You, why can't you really punish a two-year-old? It's because it's not fair to. They don't remember that you can't cook cheese toast in a VHS machine. Yeah, they don't get that. And so punishing them is, is, you know, superfluous and cruel. And so they don't have their narrative set up yet. They don't get time so much. That complexity in the default mode network of the brain isn't yet set up. And so, but ask anyone who's worked with toddlers in a preschool or something, and they'll tell you every single one of them is totally different. And yet you ask this teacher who's teaching 14-year-olds, they say everyone's the same. And it makes them crazy if they're good teachers. If they're not such good teachers, they're happy because if think about it, if your whole class is the same, you sleep better at night. Especially if you're running the school, you want to cut off all appendages so you can sleep. But that's not the way you develop human beings. Not for right now. So the point is, is that we all have inside of us a natural personality that's actually made it quite nicely to the ultimate consciousness of the soul, the pure consciousness. They're made it nicely. 
But not only that, but you have something called your kochos anefesh, which I was planning on going into detail on tomorrow. Oh my gosh, I'm writing in Hebrew. Kochos anefesh. Which, there's no real English for this, although I'm sure there is, but it would be your, um, your uh, natural abilities, natural strengths. Like, we all have natural strengths. Like, I have been, during this whole class, in my natural strengths. You get that? Like, I, do I seem in my element? There's some natural strengths. I'm not sure what they are exactly. I'm not sure anyone's sure what my natural strengths are, but, but I'm definitely in my element right now. And, and so there's certain natural strengths that all of us have. And do not give me a hammer and nail. When we build my sukkah, I tell everybody helping me, I say, don't let me hold tools. Because the second I hold it, I hold a Phillips screwdriver, I wind up in the hospital. Okay, I don't have that natural strength of physical surroundings. I don't get that very well. And, and even though I'm like an expert level mountain biker, that's only if I ride consistently. Because when I ride with a natural rider and I've been out for a couple weeks, I can't keep up. But give me a couple days on the trail, I'm back. Because I'm not naturally good in physical environments that way. I, I work in the peoplescape. Heard of landscapes? Yeah, I work in peoplescapes. And I know a lot of people in the landscape world are not very good with people. But they're really good with plants. Or building sheds or hauling cement and stuff. Like they go, they're good at that stuff. Now, kochas and nefesh are your special strengths. God gives those to us. We're born with these things. They're part of the whole system. So you got the soul, natural personality, and then you got your kochos and nefesh, which are specific strengths that you have that God gave you, often at the expense of other strengths. So, and they, it's a whole system made of uh, nine categories, and they're all charted, and I will chart them tomorrow. If I get reminded to go into Kofos and Nefesh tomorrow, I will chart them for you so you'll know literally what occupation you should be doing. Like what would be perfect bullseye for you in how you express yourself in the world. And the last one is the stretch. Did I spell stretch right? Yeah? The last one is the stretch. And the stretch is that... Well, that's nice you have natural strengths, but... But perhaps your life's calling you into a situation where you have to wear another hat that's not you so much. But you're being called into that. It can happen in marriage. It can happen in parenting. It can happen just sitting in a plane and you see the stewardess can't reach the overhead compartments, which means you're being called into being Mr. Helpful and getting up and closing a whole cabin's worth of overhead compartments because the stewardess is short. It's just... Flight attendants. I'd be careful with gender stuff now. So that flight, I thought that's funny. This whole time I thought flight attendant was the man. So it's the flight attendant or the man and the woman? Yes. They're attending the flight. Okay. Okay, I got it. So anyway, you understand, sometimes you just got to stretch and get busy with stuff that's not you. It's just not your natural quadrant, but gee, you know, get up and do it because no one else is and and it's just, God just got your name on this thing. And then you get up and do that. This one's very fluid. This isn't really who you are, but it's who you're not. And you can stretch your way into that place all the time. Now, um, what I'm going to ask all of you to do is I'd like you all to come again tomorrow. There's also a class. Are we doing the rest of the classes here or downstairs? No, we're going downstairs. Going back to the regular essentials room on the third floor. This has been a pleasure up here. But I'm asking anyone who comes to my class tomorrow, 
Anyone wants to come back in my class, you're let in only on the basis that you shared one point with someone before you came in tomorrow. If you were taught, teach. If you were taught, teach. If someone taught you something, teach it. Okay, so you want to come back tomorrow? It's only having taught even the slightest point, even the littlest thing you got out of this, that you give this to somebody. You give the gift of something you learned. And do it, I would do that with all your classes. Have one takeaway you're going to give over. Okay, you, ta- you were taught, teach. Okay, shalom everyone. Thanks, Okay, everyone, we're going back there. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.